Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Happy summer to both of you. We're back after a slight delay, but I think that, you know, uh, the, the what is it? Uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Um, at least it does mine when I see you two smiling at me through a computer screen, ready to record a mocking cast. How goes it so far? How are you guys surviving? Loving it. We just spent a whole week at church camp as a family, and I didn't have to cook or clean for like literally six days. That is awesome. Awesome. Our salt contents through the roof because it was like memo food, but that's fine. I don't have to cook it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Your salt content. You guys are both very you're bloated. All on I mean, blood, every blood meal was medication now, but except for that, you're fine. <laughs> every meal was bacon or cake. Like, I'm gonna have bacon or cake. Like every meal, or, both. or bacon or both. cake. Bacon it was cake. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Rucker? Uh, doing good, especially now that our air conditioning is fixed. What? Our air, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh air gosh. conditioning went out. Uh, uh, for three days. Luckily, it rained a few days, so that was good. But then Friday afternoon, I went back on, and my wife and I were just like, oh, we wow, we had forgotten how amazing air conditioning is. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine living mm-hmm. in Houston before this? Anyway, that's all I'll no, say. So, I don't think anybody did. So we're now back to, we're our first world problems have been solved, and we are now back to uh, <laughs> living a life of luxury. So Is that a first world problem? I don't know. I mean, air conditioning in Houston. I mean, like, like... I said, what percentage <laughs> of the world's population has reliable air conditioning? It is it's not true. a high percentage. It's true. You know? Hashtag blessed and highly favored. Exactly. <laughs> Sweet. Sarah. So that, that's where we're headed today. This is going to be the, the, the power hour. With Sarah Condon. <laughs> as fascinating as RJ's uh, HVAC issues. AC problems yeah. are, your HVAC yeah. problems are, let's talk more broadly about summer expectations because uh, summer vacation, summer itself, I think has morphed quite a bit in the last, uh, I don't know, decade or so. Kind of everyone seems to be stressed about summer. And Carrie Willard, our own Carrie Willard, wrote something about this uh, for the site. She said, for the first time in recent memory, my kids are at loose ends this summer. As a parent who works full-time, each summer I've relied on a complex network of expensive day camps and activities to keep them supervised and occupied. But recently we hit the jackpot of having grandparents who are local, in good health, and actually want to spend time with their grandkids. And by the way, that third one is a big one. Um, this means nope. no... <laughs> no... <laughs> I mean, I don't speak from personal experience, actually, but I've watched a lot of this happen. Um, This means no more color-coordinated camp t-shirts or field trip permission forms or sunscreen before 9 a.m. This means swimming and laziness and popsicles. This also means, for Carrie, she says, my achievement meter is feeling a bit wonky. Because with day camps, my children receive awards at the end of every week. Every week, the first week they were that they attended these camps, there was a tumbleweed stampede theme. One child got the obedient cowboy award, and the other got the cool, calm, collected cowboy award. Let's face it; those awards were more for the parents who pay for camp than the campers themselves. <laughs> hey, mom, I got the obedient cowboy award. Um, That's an and so the, but continue <laughs> a little <laughs> bit. Uh, and so the lack of day camps and lack of schedules has left me feeling a bit at loose ends, too, as a parent. Grateful, but unmoored. If there's nobody telling me that my kid is an obedient cowboy, how am I even parenting them? Enter the Atlantic's review of David Epstein's new book, Range, a counterpoint to the Tiger Mom and grit tomes that have been published in the last decade. This one apparently gives parents permission and even encouragement to allow their children to quit something they've started. Epstein points to research that has shown that quitting something that's unrewarding or unfulfilling and moving on to something that's a better fit makes people happier. 
Now, that doesn't mean my kids are going to get to play video games all summer, Carrie writes, without picking up a book, but it has affirmed my countercultural attitude of loosening my grip on the reins of summer. This is secular relief in the face of little L laws that govern privileged parenting. This glimpse of grace is as much for me, the hand-wringing parent, as it is for the kid who just wants to stay in pajamas until noon. We get precious little time to spend with our kids when they're not being observed, corrected, and gritted into submission. Have you guys come up against this, the fact that um, summer does not actually mean rest and relaxation, it means a time to sort of optimize their opportunities, and if anything, maybe to optimize your rest, and to rest extremely efficiently, or um, just to make sure your kids are nonstop occupied and never idle? Is that, I mean, mean, leading question. This is the first (laughs) summer I haven't done writing prompts. I usually, I've done, like, the past couple years, I'll do, like, so before you can do this or that, all the fun stuff, like, you have to do, like, a writing prompt, or you have to, um, yeah, there was, like, a list of chores, and we just all hated each other so much, and no one was a better writer by the end of the summer, and... I just had to let go of a lot of that stuff. And I don't know why this summer I've suddenly done that, but I have. Um, I liked Carrie's piece because to me, like summer is actually the last season of rest we have in America, right? Like Mm. we've given all the rest of it up. We've made Christmas miserable. Thanksgiving involves a lot of family that gets miserable. Um, You know, and, and it's also like, so we've, we've taken the rest away and we've like, now created just another version of New Year's or Lent or, you know, whatever sort of we're going to get it right this time. We're going to start over. We're going to, you know, we're, we're going to optimize, refresh and renew sort of thing. And I, I mean, my, our family experience has just been like that leads to misery. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, so my kids have watched, I mean, we're only like two weeks into summer and they have watched like the whole library of ninja turtles at this point you know what i mean like i'm just i'm just like yeah i guess they're just gonna get dumb this summer and i'm okay with it i don't know well rj how about you are you feeling the pressure to maximize summer are you relaxed as it appears you know sarah you talked about writing prompts and i started to get really self-righteous but then i realized last summer maybe the past two summers we were definitely doing some test prep work with the kids like act prep ic mm-hmm. prep you know things like that as they're getting prepared to um apply for uh high school and college which were you know variously i don't know effective i guess but the thought i had about this was we have two pretty different kids you know our older kid really likes to stay busy and so i think th- was it three summers ago we had a pretty low-key summer and i think he was pretty bored, you know? Um, And then the past two summers, we've actually uh, somehow we've taken some pretty um, fun trips, actually, as a family, um, which most of us have loved. But this summer, we don't really have hardly anything planned. And suddenly our 14-year-old, who, as I've shared, you know, the puberty is strong with that one, um, is saying this is like the best summer ever. You know, he's he's sleeping until... uh, like noon and he's playing video games and hanging out with his friends and doing a little bit of swim team and he doesn't want to do he just wants to hang out with his friends and be around and chill but he does he seems uh, he seems a little lighter and happier and he's also into high school he doesn't have to worry about applying to anything next year which is good but um so this is i think turning out to be it could be a pretty chill summer pretty achievement free summer but I, I guess i'm not feeling terribly anxious about it but you, you have to ask my kids how anxious they're feeling about it I do think there's a difference between ACT prep and me having a six-year-old who's just learned to write doing writing prompts just to name it. You know I appreciate what I mean? you saying like, that. I do, I do think there's a difference. Like, um, yeah, it's – and I think what you're saying about – that's such a great thing when you know your kids really well because I just love a second-born. Our second-born's the same way. Like, she could just hang out and snuggle all day. She ain't got to go nowhere. She don't need nothing. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think there's something really beautiful when a family has a child like that because it actually reminds you to rest. Yes. Yeah. Did I share with you what Jackson said recently? What did I share that two weeks ago? He mm-hmm. said this to my grand, to my, my mom was here visiting and they were staying up late, just the two of them watching TV one night. I mean, Jack has gone a lot because he has a car with his friends, but he's actually been hanging out a little bit this summer, which is amazing. And at some point, he's, he just turned 17. He turned to my mom probably like midnight and he goes it is so nice not to be angry all the time mm. anymore you know and what a comfort that was because it does it it seems like you know kids maybe i mean i only know about boys i'm sure girls too 13 
14, yeah. such a hard age, so much anger. But now to see my 17 year old be like, I'm over, I'm out of it. I'm out mm -hmm. of it. I feel lighter. I feel happier. I feel that was a, a tremendous, a little word of grace, um, in the midst of kind of, uh, another child who sometimes seems happy and sometimes not. So anyway, phases. No, I, d I definitely get sad. Uh, you know, it, we can talk about children, but you know, for the, for the, for the non-parents out there, I mean, it, all of us are afflicted by this and, and you talk to adults, no matter if they have kids or not, and you ask them how their summer went and that you will, you'll always hear at least today is you'll hear the same thing you hear any other time. It was busy. It was, it was busy. Full. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was good, but full. Yeah. That's the sort of nicer way to say it. It just, it just flew by. Uh, there was also something at the Atlantic recently about work-life balance mm -hmm. and how that all of our talk about work-life balance, Olga Kazan was writing about it. And she said that it's become, for sort of type A people in America, instead of it becoming like permission to have a home life, it's become, uh, you start to feel like you're failing at both. Yeah. Uh, both at working and at resting, and rest becomes something you then have to kind of master or or win. <laughs> and uh, when rest becomes uh, this thing that's got a premium on it, like uh, you know that we even know that you'll e even if it's promoted as a as a hack to more productivity, if you rest better and you sleep more. I mean, all of a sudden people are really anxious about how they're not resting well enough, and that's the irony of ironies. And I I. I you you see a lot, I think you do see a lot of the kind of seculosity of uh, leisure in the summer and how the cult of productivity has taken over, um, and that we we feel like even even if it is rest that we're trying to optimize, that becomes a new thing that we're failing at or measuring or something like that. And at the same time, I'm also looking at college kids who, um, you know, instead of having a college job being a lifeguard, they now have two internships and then a family vacation at a nice place. And it's, um, I, I don't know where it all ends, but I do know that it's a setup for a whole lot of uh, enoughness and, and all this stuff. And it brings me back to that great Calvin and Hobbes uh, collection, The Days Are Just Packed, which is all about summer vacation. And like, can you believe how much nothing we get to do this summer? Mm. I always love that. And it's like, uh, the, Calvin and Hobbes is like, I... I that we better get outside and start doing nothing as soon as possible. And I'm, I'm, I'm all in favor of that, even though here I am on a, you know, late afternoon recording a podcast when it's beautiful outside. But uh, tell me more, Sarah, were you about to say something? Uh, I was just thinking about like, I don't know. I was thinking about this last week that we had um, at a church camp where it's the local camp for the Episcopal church. And if you volunteer to do morning prayer and evening prayer, you get to stay for free and, they feed you and you're in a cabin and there really wasn't anything to do. And I said to my husband today, we took a walk together and we've got like a real vacation, quote unquote, real vacation planned in July. But I was like, I actually think the best part of the summer is going to be these past five days we had where we were just together and, um, a little bored and we watched some American Ninja warrior, you yes. know, like, I mean, it's like, it was really not like, we didn't see anything special. We didn't, we didn't get on an airplane, you know, and it was just, um, but it was just really, really lovely. So I, I you know, so, sometimes there's a tendency in the church world to complain about people that just stop coming to church in the summer. Yeah. Um, but I've found over the years, it's it's a way to almost continue to to observe a little bit of that. Sabbath is the wrong word, but uh, you don't have summer vacation anymore. But working for a church, we all find it to be such a relief. There, there, there's sometimes pressure for us to continue lots of programming during the summer. But my uh, the rector here, our boss, he's basically saying no. Yeah, we need to stop. We anything that we're doing, there'll be a we'll do Sunday services and like one midweek communion thing. But that is it. it. And he encourages people to knock off early and to really enjoy. And the pace, just the the whole level of things. I know that not, you know, if you're trying to meet a deadline or, a, a, you know, your a qu quarterly goals or something like that, then not everything has that ability, but maybe there's something countercultural about the church and that we still get to observe a little of that. You know, it used to be that, you know, priests at big churches would go away from basically Memorial Day to Labor Day. And then, and, and I could see why that would be important, uh, spiritually speaking, to get a break from all of the need and transference and whatever just... could you mean david <laughs> <laughs> you come back actually wanting to be there <laughs> exactly yeah oh. well let's talking about uh let's let's just uh 
uh, just go straight into more performance anxiety, and let's talk about yes, that's yes, the new name yes, for the podcast. Yes. We're just going <laughs> to call it performance anxiety. anxiety. Buckle performance, up, performanceism. Let's talk about performanceism. <laughs> you accomplished something great. So now what? By A. C. Shilton. Ooh. This appeared in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, and she begins by saying, "You finally did it. You got the promotion, secured the raise, finished the project, or otherwise leveled up in your career. It's a wonderful feeling of accomplishment." You should be proud. But then you come down from that high and reality starts to sink in. Where do you go from here? And she goes in to talk about the arrival fallacy. Um, I wrote something about this on the site recently. But the arrival fallacy is the illusion that once we make it, once we attain our goal or reach our destination, we will reach lasting happiness. Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar says that the arrival fallacy is the reason some Hollywood stars struggle with mental health issues and substance abuse later in life. These individuals start out unhappy, but they say to themselves, it's okay because when I make it, then I'll be happy, Dr. Ben-Shahar says. But then they make it, and while they may feel briefly fulfilled, the feeling doesn't last. This time, they're unhappy, but more than that, they're unhappy without hope. Because before they lived on the, the illusion, well, the false hope, that once they make it, then they'll they'll be happy. Shilton goes on to write, the problem is that achievement doesn't equal happiness, at least not over the long term. But this isn't a message that most of us are familiar with. In fact, it's almost antithetical to the American dream, which tells us that hard work and achievement deliver a happy life. Instead, according to the experts, the number one predictive of happiness is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. In other words, relationships. If relationships make us happy, the fact that many of us neglect our relationships in pursuit of career success may further squelch our joy. And so, uh, Shilton uh, concludes, you should banish any, any sentences like this, I'll be happy if I can just achieve X, Y, or Z. So the, there is something called the arrival fallacy, and you, we talk about this in using other language about sort of the, the non, not being justified according to works of little L law or what have you, the futility of ladder climbing. But here you have the arrival fallacy, this idea that once I just achieve X, Y, or Z, well, then I'll be happy, or then I will be fulfilled or justified or what have you. Um, what do you think about the article, you two? Uh, I liked this because it strangely resonated with something I read this morning. Um, I read every day. Um, I read the writer's almanac, Garrison Keillor, obviously. Um, Mm -hmm. And he did a whole thing. He does these little histories about writers. And he did one today that I loved about Leo Tolstoy that Mm. I didn't know. Um, So I just pulled it up because I wanted to read just a little bit of it because it was it so resonated with this because they were talking about this being sort of a new problem. But it's not. So, um, it says he was 52 years old and his two greatest novels, War and Peace and Anna Karenina were behind him. He had found himself in a crisis. He was famous, had a family and land and money, but it all seemed empty. He was unable to write, had trouble sleeping, contemplated suicide. He read the great philosophers, but found holes in all of their arguments. He was amazed that the majority of ordinary Russians managed to keep themselves going every day, and he finally decided it must be their faith. From there, it was a short time until Tolstoy took a walk in the woods and found God. He wrote, At the thought of God, happy waves of life welled up inside me. Everything came alive, took on meaning. The moment I thought I knew God, I lived. But the moment I forgot Him, the moment I stopped believing, I also stopped living. So I just, I, I really loved that. And there's a beautiful, it goes wow. on to, yeah, isn't that very powerful? <laughs> say, that's incredible. Yeah. I'd never heard that before. And it goes on to talk about how he then like went all in Christian and like wanted to like dress like a, a peasant and wanted to give away all his money to the poor people. And his wife was like, excuse Whoa. me, I like our lifestyle. <laughs> um, so it's very funny. And there, he does, he actually makes this pilgrimage to a monastery and he's going to like do it like one of the people. And he doesn't realize like how long it's been since he's walked long distances in whatever shoes they had back then. And so he had to take the train back home because uh, he had done some and damage. I think after that, he wrote the short story, Father Sergius, which is kind of about some of this oh, stuff. Oh, cool. And unbelievable. But I had never heard that distillation It's such a it. great conversion story. Um, but it really speaks to this, this thing that we all have where it's like, well, if I just do this, then I'll be happy, right? And then... 
I, for me, I mean, I think my, <laughs> I think hitting this age where like you have sort of that, whatever you thought you're, you know, you've kind of landed, right? You've got the kids and the husband or you don't, and that's okay too. And that's where you've landed as well. But you kind of imagined this happiness that would come out of that. And, um, when you arrive there and it's, it's, a, it's different. It doesn't, it doesn't feel the same way. I don't, I don't know. I was at the pool yesterday. We obviously spent a lot of time at the pool here in Houston, our neighborhood pool. And there was this couple and they were, um, on a bench together and they were like at that age where like, you're just so beautiful. Like they were like 17, you know, and they're like all arms and legs, like intertwined, like talking to each other on a bench. And I was just like, my God, like they are so gorgeous and like are about to face the world and like everything, everything's going to change and everything's going to fall apart and everything's going to come back together. And I was saying this to my husband today and he goes, yes. And they haven't even had to deal with accomplishment yet. And, you know, like adult accomplishment and what that means and sort of what the fallout from that is. And it's just, um, it's Hmm. accomplishment is such, I mean, I, I love what they say here about, how we are a goal oriented species. Cause I think sometimes when I talk about mockingbird, people are like, so you just don't do anything, you know, <laughs> like we're, go- we're, I mean, we're goal oriented. We know that. And, we, and they, they actually say in the piece, this thing that I've seen certainly in ministry where I see priests retire early and they're dead in like two years. I mean, that's a very common thing. Well, a lot of men retire and either immediately have heart attacks or become alcoholics. Yeah, it's yeah, like it's crazy. Um, and so there is something to the doing that's important, but I just think when we identify with the doing or with the goal and maybe not with the process, I mean, I hate to romanticize monastic stuff, although Tolstoy is definitely in a monastery, but I always think about that. It's I'm not going to remember who it was, but it's one of the mystic sort of people talked about God being in the pots and pans. You know, there's just like this like thing in the doing that's so beautiful. Well, his book, that 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 short story, which is not very short, the novella Father Sergius is about, a, a, he, he tries, uh, about a monk who tries to basically be the most hardcore monk ever. Um. And he's cannot by his own will and effort actually um, save himself or quiet his Take soul. Take that, and Pelagius. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, we're about to get into that, but I think that, uh, but, you know, this, this uh, as I love that line that she writes when she says, um, um, this is not something, um, this isn't a message most of us are familiar with, that happiness and achievement aren't actually... Um, attached and there is the problem of success just like there's the problem of failure and it's it's the reason why some people are are deeply afraid of failure and some people are deeply afraid of success because there's a there's a flip side to it and um, it's not just like Eddie Vedder kind of you know I, I don't want to be you know made to compromise or something like that but the problem of people who seem to have it all together or seem to be you know really high achievers is that they they're unbelievably deeply familiar with this dynamic that the the next every time you hit that rung and i i happen to think i mean how could we not think of the that uh, documentary free solo you know that mm. where this guy this rock climber who's amazing slightly in psychotic uh individual climbs up the uh you know, the half dome without a, um, in Yosemite, without a rope. And it's like the, the, the most dangerous thing ever. And he does it, he finds it, the whole movie's about kind of leading up to this moment. And the second he does it, he's sort of like, huh, well... Felt good for about five minutes. What I'm going to do next, <laughs> yes. you know, and and uh, the arrival fallacy. It, the movie might as well be called the arrival fallacy. Uh, you know, you know, on a, on a, with rocks. Uh, RJ, what what do you think? It's not as catchy a title. <laughs> no, the I, arrival fallacy with rocks. Why, why don't they consult <laughs> me on this stuff? You know, RJ. Well, it made me thankful that I I've never actually tried to accomplish anything. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I just that's that's a joke. Um, but I think I think what they said about yeah, the more you focus on how happy you are, the less happy you're going to be, right? Like mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus was onto something when he said, you know, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your span of life? You know, um, do not worry for every day is enough troubles of its own. And I, I do find in those moments when I'm able to live in the present, uh, there's tremendous freedom in that. And sometimes it sucks and sometimes it's great. Um, but the ability to just to live there and tell the truth about whatever it is that you're going through, um, there's freedom in that too, especially, you know, if you have people that 
care about you, that love you, um, are, are, are willing to listen to you, engage with you. Um, yeah. So I, I, I just totally agree. I agree with that. And I think, I don't know, setting goals versus, uh, shooting for achievements. Like, yeah, okay. We all have things we w think are important, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but I do think what, what probably is most important that whatever it is you find yourself doing, um, trying to, uh, enjoy it as best you can. And then also I think what the whole Tolstoy thing goes to is remembering that you're not that important at the end right. of the day, <laughs> that you're small. You know, what did your uh, dad used to say, Dave, in the midst of the financial crisis? Um, I don't want to be too big to fail. I want to be too small to fail. Mm. That's true, that there, there's freedom in smallness. There's uh, a relief. There's relief. And that's what mm -hmm. Tolstoy had to, had to get to. He became very big and very important and very successful and very bound. And suddenly he discovers God and discovers that, you know, he's going to die and it's not that big of a deal and he's not that important. And uh, there's tremendous freedom in that. You know, it's, it's a little bit like um, how nice it is that Seinfeld went to his little comedians in cars and coffee and his right. stupid little American Express ads. And, and even Conan, you know, after Conan lost The Tonight Show and the great speech he gave it. Dartmouth and, and, uh, you know, continue, they continue to do what they did before, but it wasn't quote unquote as, as good as the other thing they did, but it didn't keep them from creating and engaging yeah. the things they love for their own That's sake. Funny. I mean, RJ, you and, and making I were millions of dollars doing it. <laughs> you and I were youth ministers together for a number of years. Yes, we and were. This is something, this is kind of a refrain, this arrival fallacy, at least in, in uh, it was a refrain in our youth ministry. Yes. This idea that you'd telling kids sort of deconstructing on the front end a little bit of their ambition. Um, not, I thought it was a healthy thing. Uh, of course, it, it matters almost not at all in the actual, you know, once you get into the system of needing to get the next gold stamp on your, you know, passport or your know, resume. But this idea that, you know, once if you make a million dollars, you're going to be thinking about the next million and, and, and all this stuff, and you can say it up front, and yet you can still fall prey to it. And this is the, the Roman 7 moment of we can know this stuff to be deeply true because everyone's life basically attests to the arrival fallacy. Yeah. And Christians have their own version of it. And I, I'm almost embarrassed by this because I wrote about it in the wake of, you know, I'm feeling a little bit of that. I don't even know if I should use the phrase post more, uh, um, what do you call it? Postpartum, postpartum depression. Postpartum <laughs> after the book came out and yeah, like feeling that it's like, a, yeah. I was really excited for a little while and seeing all this, you know, getting all this validation, but then it's sort of done and it's over and I'm still who I am and what's next and that wasn't enough and what is going to be enough. And, and even though I just written a book about enoughness, enoughness right. not being something you can grab. And so here I am uh, in, in my, this very small scale experiencing the irony of, of Romans 7 in a moment. David also reminded me, I don't know if you remember, but you and I and Mark Choi, who's a wonderful Presbyterian uh, minister now who also worked with us in youth ministry, hung out late one night after our ministries had sort of come to an end and we're talking about what did we actually accomplish? And, and the, the, the answer was, we had no idea, you know, here we, like we'd mm. been working combined probably 15 years in three different places with hundreds and hundreds of kids. But like, what could you actually point to and say, I accomplished that? And it was like, we sort of, the conclusion we reached was we'll know later. Maybe we'll see some fruit. Maybe when we get to the king, we only really know in the kingdom. And at the end of the day, of course, we didn't accomplish it anyway. God accomplished it, and we were fortunate to be part of his work in the world. But I think that's important to to say, especially to, any, to anyone, but maybe especially to people who are in ministry. It's not like you can point to a spreadsheet and, and be like, uh, I increased the bottom line or something. You know, I guess you could say there are more people coming than there were before, but like, what is that? Who knows what that means? You know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to measure in some ways. I don't want to say ministry is not definitely not immune from that, but it does feel tougher to quantify than maybe other things. Is that, is that, yeah. Well, the upside is that you do get people coming into your life 15, 16 years later who yes. you, you had some impact on that you had no idea. Yes. And like you, they're telling you something you did or something you, they, you said, and you're like, wait, what? what? Exactly. And at the time you thought that you were it was a throwaway line because you remember it. Yeah. Enough kids to camp or something like that. And in fact, nothing, a lot of that just increased their own, you know, I think of Joshua Harris in that book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and like what he thought he was accomplishing yeah. and what he was yeah, accomplishing were two different things. <laughs> and yet, but, and yet, or maybe like Veggie Tales, right? That guy yeah. did the same thing. And Keurigs. You know, it's a list. <laughs> the arrival fallacy is everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere. 
everywhere. I said this, I mean, I said this a little bit earlier, but I do want to, this is the reason why Mockingbird exists is because of this phenomenon, because people will often say to me, they really will say like, you got, like, you don't encourage people. I've sat in Bible studies before and sort of talked about this kind of theology. Well, goal setting's important, people will say to me. Like, we have to have things that we're going to do, and we just have things we're going to accomplish. And, you know, basically you're telling me not to do this. And, and, and my response to that is, would that we could tell people not to do this? Would that it were possible that we could tell people not to manically set goals, think about what they're doing the next day, think about their failures and accomplishments. Like that's why Mockingbird exists on some level because it's like innately like in a cellular level, a part of who we are, right? Yes. So I just, I, I need to say that about this piece that that's why we talk about stuff like that because, you know, we, are, we're, a lot of us are on the other side of some of this stuff. I mean, I think a lot of us have faced failure in our work life or faced accomplishment and the emptiness that comes afterwards. And I, I don't know. I just, I think that's, I think it's necessary. So. Well, uh, gosh, I mean, I think that you also, when, when you hear banish any sentences, like I'll be happy if I can just achieve X, the reason such as sentences exist are not because they sound catchy. It's because that's how the law works. If I can do this, then Then. that will occur. Then it puts me me in control of makes me the, uh, the, the the subject. If you just eat this fruit, your eyes will be opened and then you will be like God. (laughs) Then... And that is, unfortunately, uh, you know, there are consequences, and we can engineer certain things, but the gospel comes into being, you know, as, we, as we've talked about many times, it's when, when willpower fails, and, when, um, and, or, and, and sometimes when willpower fails is when you've actually achieved the thing, yeah. and you realize it didn't actually, the then part, the if part worked, the then part didn't actually it's like, deliver. guess what? You still have your childhood, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's like... Seriously, it's it's like the um, the SNL skit that everybody sent you, Dave, about the vacation. You know what I mean? Like, t- like you can go on this vacation, but they the 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 travel agency or the vacation, you know, organization wants to to remind you that your life won't be better when you get back. Like that your <laughs> marriage. Adam Sandler apart. trip like, to Italy. One. Yes. Oh my if god, you're that was sad so good. In Mamaroneck, you might <laughs> still be sad in, sad in Italy. It's so good. I mean, that's the greatest, um, that is one of the greatest, uh, you know, I think, uh, illustrations. I used that at the beginning of a sermon recently, actually, about this very thing. Totally. um, Because it hits so close to home, because summer is the time when we think, if I can get away, if I can, and and there's certain things vacation (laughs) can do. (laughs) But they can't can't fix that. But you can't, what does he say? If we can, we can, we can take you on a hike. We cannot make you into someone who enjoys hiking. <laughs> or the best one is, we can take you to a wine tasting. We cannot change why you drink or the person you become when you do. <laughs> Adam Sandler. Oh, God, That's love so him. so genius. Uh, my wife well, just is in love with Adam Sandler, but anyway, it's neither here nor well, there. Well, guys, here's how about this segue. Yeah. Talking, you know, speaking of the law in practice, let's get to this remarkable commencement address that Senator Joshua Hawley, the Missouri senator, gave to uh, students at King's College in New York. And it was published under the title, The Age of Pelagius. And this is a, a U.S. senator we saying this. We are living in the age of Pelagius. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, he gave a crash course in Pelagianism, which is one of our great, uh, you know, punching bags on Mockingbird. In fact, yes. semi, semi-Pelagianism is, we're, we'll get to that. But here, here's how he just fi- describes it, because I thought it was very good. Pelagius, this is a, Pelagius is a fourth century uh, monk, held that the individual possessed a powerful capacity for achievement. In fact, he believes individuals could achieve their own salvation. Since perfection is possible for man, it is obligatory, is how he put it. Uh. The key was will and effort. You know, no summers off, people. If individuals worked hard enough and deployed their talents wisely enough, they could indeed be perfect. This idea famously drew the ire of Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, who responded that we humans are not achievement machines. Mm. We are fragile. We are fallible. We suffer weakness and need, and we all stand in need of God's grace. 
But Pelagius was not satisfied. He took his stand on an idea of human freedom. He responded that God gave individuals free choice, that we could use that free choice to adopt our own purposes, to fix our own destinies, to create ourselves, if you like. A disciple of Pelagius named Julian of uh, Eclanum said that freedom of choice is that by which man is, quote unquote, emancipated from God. If you listen closely, now here's where he makes this turn. If you listen closely, you can hear Pelagianism almost everywhere, in our fiction, in our film, in our school curricula, and self-help books. It even features prominently in our law, the civil law. The Pelagian view says that the individual is most free when he or she is most alone, able to choose his or her own way without interference. Family and tradition, neighborhood and church, these things get in the way of uninhibited free choice. And now this Pelagian idea of freedom is one our cultural leaders have embraced for decades. Here's the paradox. For all the big talk about individual freedom, Pelagian philosophy has made American society more hierarchical and has made it more elitist. This is no accident. Pelagius himself was most popular with the old senatorial families of Rome, the wealthy, the well-connected, the aristocrats. They were his patrons. And why? He validated their privilege and their power. Because if freedom meant means choice among options, then the people with the most choices are the most free, and that means the rich. And if salvation is about achievement, then those uh, with the most accolades are righteous, and that means the elite and the strong. Fundamentally, Pelagius misunderstood the cross. The cross of Christ announces the weakness and need of every person, he quotes Corinthians here, and that means it excludes the boasting and the pride of the few. The cross says the talented, the well-born, the well-educated do not deserve special privileges. They are not more valuable than anyone else. The call of God comes to every person, and the power of God is poured out on all who believe. Now, he goes on and he extrapolates quite a bit, of course, in, in a, what I would call a predictably partisan direction, though I think the Pelagianism um, very much afflicts all sides of the coin when, when it comes to self-salvation. Uh, liberals and conservatives, they each have their own form of self-salvation, and so, in fact, self-invention, self-creation. Yeah, but um, what he gets at here is the kind of toxicity of this idea that hum- the f- of the free will and that God helps those who help themselves. This is the great kind of American mantra, and I don't really think it's the American mantra so much mm-hmm. as the human mantra. Um, but I was struck by it and wanted to know first, what, what are your gut reactions to, to this commencement address? Yeah. So for me, I read this and it, it reminded me so much of the piece actually that we talked about in the last podcast. Um, the only places, uh, on the streets that understand that the, the Dave, I think you, yeah, you put this together, um, this piece from the guardian that the journalist wrote, the people who challenged my atheism most were drug addicts and prostitutes. I mean, I wonder when the piece will come out and maybe it's been written and maybe this is kind of that piece, but where we talk about how being an atheist is actually just being super, 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 I won't use the F word, but I want to privileged. It's just being super privileged to be atheist. Because you're able to say, I have autonomy, and I have control, and I can make these decisions, and I can feel good about myself, and I can earn these things and accomplish these things, and therefore, like, God doesn't exist. And so, you know, Pelagianism meets sort of like American atheism. Mm. is They're very similar to me. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a sort of, there's an atheist that would, there's like a sorrowful atheist who says, I, like yeah. a John Gray who says, I still, I am bound, I am terrible, but I still look at the universe and see nothing but chaos. Um, and yet, I think most of what, I, I, I agree with you 100%, and I think it's like almost like a taboo that what we're talking about is sort of, this is, uh, you know, here Pelagius was very, very popular among the privileged who, I mean, for whom it validated their own accomplishment. I mean, I want to be sensitive. Like, I think people who are grappling with unbelief is, is one thing. I think that is one thing. And I think seeing the world and the chaos that it's in is one thing. And I, I am very empathetic to that and certainly have my own moments where I'm like, 
you know, you want to talk about the story of a God who died and rose on our behalf and suddenly you start sounding like a zombie movie with a weird theological bent and you're like, wait, what am I believing? Like, I, I understand people navigating that, but I, I see so much less of that in the world and I see so much more of like blessed by the universe, like feeling good, making my own choices, you know, check out my succulents on my Instagram feed. Like that's, that's actually Pelagianism and that's actually atheism. And, and we see that actually in Christian circles all the time. Um, Hmm. So anyway, that's kind of the atheism I'm speaking to. Yeah, and this is how the means by which uh, you know man is emancipated from God. In in fact, and that was a situation in which belief was sort of, I don't know, uh, a default. So there was no even sense of that. But it really is. If I can be perfect, what need do I have of God? And yet you have the testimony of all of these lesser thans and all of these, uh, you know. also rands and failures saying actually um and addicts at you know aa meetings and things like that saying actually that where you meet god is not in the place of your succulence but in the place when when uh you know when your phone has uh you don't have a phone none of these people you know it's, it's that he that Arnade is talking about in that piece actually have that and i i, I think it's uh something that we need to um I don't know, explore delicately, but honestly. Or, but RJ, what are you thinking? I just want to know about more about Josh Hawley. I was like, who is this guy? And where did he hear this message? You know, mm-hmm. he's from, I guess he's from Missouri. So maybe like, is he Luth? Is he LCMS? Maybe he is. Maybe this is where he heard about this. But uh, it's because like you said, we we here have our own little um, niche where we talk about things like Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, but these are not part of the public discourse, even like in the church, except when there was some... Um, there was some Episcopalian theologian a few years back who wanted to like reinstate Pelagius. Do you remember that, Sarah? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I remember, remember when that. that happened. I was like, oh, oh, sweet. Okay. Awesome. Didn't happen. I mean, half I of think. them are low key about it still. So let's well, not act but, like it's a big deal. But that's deal. the whole thing when everyone is low key yes. about it. it just, yes. Because it's, 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 it's so a, it's, alluring. It's a control mechanism, yeah. right? It, it's for controlling yourself. It's for controlling other people. It's action consequence. It, yeah. it seems to work in the short term. The alternative is terrifying, right? That mm-hmm. you actually have no control over right. anything it's at terrifying. all. And you are hopelessly lost. And yep. let me just say it, you have no free will. You know, that was the essence of the debate debate between Augustine and and Pelagius, but you know, it's it's sort of quote unquote dehumanizing to a degree in terms of our vision of what it means to be a human. Um, and yet, you know, as uh, I think Gerhard Fortas said, you know, that God's goal is to take us unhappy little gods and make us into true humans. And part of mm. what it means to be a true human is what Leo Tolstoy discovered, which is you're not that important and right. you don't have that many choices. Right. And there, but and there's someone bigger than you and more and more important than you. But but guess what? Also. You're loved. Right. That 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 essence loves you enough to die for you. Um, and as you guys were talking about, um, I don't know where I thought about this, but you know what I think when I'm talking about people who are more universalist, you know, in their outlook, that maybe not atheist, but universalist, like you know, all paths are equally valid. I'm like, well, if that's true, then Jesus died for nothing, mm-hmm. absolutely nothing. And and you can make up all sorts of alternate explanations, but um, don't tell me that my Lord died for nothing um, because I know He didn't. I know you know. We, so, Dave, what are you going to say? Well, no, I think that one of the things we're saying here is that straight-up Pelagianism, at, when it when it comes out, is usually a fault. Today, it's expressed almost always. Yes, always. Uh, well, no, no. <clears throat> real Pelagianism is sort of expressed as I think it's just straight-up atheism. I, I, okay. I, I feel it's it's sort of materialism. It's and it, it, that means that it, there's. I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of secular humanism, in which under which is the umbrella under which unbelief sort of at least functions a lot of the time, all entails a high anthropology, a, a yeah. high view oh, of, hu- of human autonomy, agency, yeah. and capability. But then within the church, what thrives is something we call semi-Pelagianism. And, you know, for the sake of our listeners, I, let me read to you what how we define it on Mockingbird on the site, because uh, I think it, it really describes the American church, and it, it, ha- it, it results, the, its result, I think, is oftentimes true unbelief in the very, um, uh, the, 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 the kind that we were talking about earlier, Sarah. Semi-Pelagian constitutes a more mixed and preve- pre- prevalent view than Pelagianism. It understands the sovereignty of God and human effort as working together toward human salvation. 
You may have heard it in terms of meeting God halfway, or co-laboring with God, or God knocks at the door and I answer, or let go, let go and let God, or even... Um, you know, uh, God helps those who help themselves. Semi-Pelagian is, is, ah! is seductive. Ben Franklin. It's seductive because it appeals to our sinful desire to stand on our own two feet while still throwing God a bone. See, we desperately want to play a God, part. God, I want your bone. <laughs> uh, keep it going. Let's keep it going. It's uh, good. We desperately want to play a part in the salvation tango. The problems here should be fairly self-evident. Questions of exactly how much of a role we play and how we know we've done so successfully plague the semi-Pelagians. Plague the semi-Pelagian, fostering the sort of anxiety and judgment that eventually drives people away from Christianity altogether. Have I done enough? I know God loves me. I know God is sovereign. But wait, wait. I, I, it's up to me to respond. How much have I responded? I used to respond, but now I'm not not less responsive. I thought I had responded, but now I realize I was just being self-involved. That is to say, in practice, semi-Pelagianism has a tendency to revert to the non-semi version, so to full-blown Pelagianism. And what we are advocating for is not, is the gospel, which says that God is God and uh, we are not, and the cross announces that God works through weakness, failure, vulnerability, um, you know, guilt is where we are met. That, we that's, are where, that's, where, that's where faith is born, not, not, in our, not in our ability to contribute, but in our, in our lack of ability to contribute. Now, how that works out in some kind of, and, and, and you know, this can all become ways that uh, things have become polemical and become new formulas for beating other people up. Mm. And yet, the truth that it, it ultimately captures is one that uh, is of a gracious God who works in the lives of actual people, which are not the healthy 17-year-olds with their, you know, entwined legs uh, with mm. everything in front of them as much as those, I want to be one of those people. But I want to be one of those people because I don't want to be confronted with how small and how limited oh I am. <laughs> you live with them, though. We don't live with them yet. Oh, so I just no, remember, man. I'm like, oh my Sorry, God, I'm, legs I'm preaching. What else do you guys think about semi-Pelagianism? Which is a fancy word for well, a very. I think it also what thing. it calls out. What it really calls out is is. I'm gonna say the correct way to engage with the Bible and with the teachings of Jesus in particular, which is you can't. You, you need to pay as much attention to how what Jesus says makes you feel, as to as to what it makes you think. You know, so when you read the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is sort of like, "Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect," you got to think about. Okay, let me let let me go do that. What does that do to me? How do you know the that Christianity, the gospel, can be counterintuitive sometimes, and what sounds like it it, it sounds good in your head can actually be deadly harmful in practice. Right? That's what like. It, of course, that's what he's saying. Pelagianism sounds great. Freedom, you know, autonomy, empowerment, self definition. Oh my gosh, it sounds amazing. Until you like get cancer, you or know, you can't or, stop drinking, or, or go bankrupt, or you or get unexpected, you know, I don't or you know, yell something. at your kids every morning. Exactly. So it sounds great in like how we like to think <laughs> about ourselves, but it's awful in terms of the way we actually live our lives. Whereas, um, you know, the, you know, um, the works of the cross, you know, always appear. Um, uh, well, anyway, I'm not going to quote Luther right now. But you need to pay attention to like real life and what's actually going on in real life and not your fantasy about how things should be or how someone else has told you they ought to be, but how they actually are in your lived experience and, and the experience of the people around you, because that's where God actually works, not in your mind, but in your life and your heart and your reality. Is that fair to say? I love it. Yeah. I, I'm honestly just wondering if I believe in semi-Pelagianism. I'm wondering. That's a debate. Because a debate. I cuz I just feel like and I and I say this across the spectrum of Christianity left to right. I just feel like once we enter into the territory of thinking of ourselves as co-creators with the risen Lord, do we still believe in the risen Lord? I mean, I think that's a real, that's like, do we still believe in the power of what happened or have we have we taken just even Three percent credit for it, and 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 in doing that, aren't we undoing what has happened? 
So for me, that that's the real, that's a real question. And I, and I think about that, you know, sort of in some of the wishy-washy theology I see in mainline Protestantism, but I also think about it and I hate to bring it up again, but succulents on Instagram, because there are these young women who say that they are Christian and they may throw around words like Jesus and the Holy Ghost, but they're still taking credit for whatever's gone well. And they're like, they're still telling you if you make these choices, you know, then you're going to have this outcome. And at the moment you step into that territory, you can say Jesus on repeat, but you don't believe in him. So... Yeah, I mean, I think semi-Pelagianism is much more nefarious, and that's why we try to do it. But of course, you know, it become can become its own form of semi-Pelagianism to be the person who calls out the semi-Pelagians, you know? I think the sudden. scariest thing is somebody who's an atheist and they don't realize they're an atheist. I mean, not yeah. honestly. And that's the territory you start to enter into. So you better watch with those succulent pictures, ladies. <laughs> and, well, to some, you and, to some degree, and to some degree, Sarah, obviously, that's, that's all of us, right? That each right. of us in our day-to-day existence yes. lives as if there isn't a God who loves mm-hmm. us. That it's up to us. We are in charge. We have to yes. make the right choices. So, yep. so it's still it's the cross continues to be our, the, the sovereign one way grace of God continues to be our only hope. Even if we say that's what we believe in, because our lives uh, tend to testify differently. True. Yeah. And it's a thing we have, that's why it's so, I mean, that's why we have to be reminded of it constantly because, you know, as soon as things start to go well, I'm like, whoo, look at me, high cotton, you know, and then, and then like, hot cotton, high cotton, high and cotton, then, and then it falls apart. <laughs> we also have a dictionary on Mockingbird for the phrases I use. So just, it's an alternative <laughs> one. It's a glossary. glossary. <laughs> we need one. We need one. But, high cotton. But then everything falls apart and it's like, oh, you know, so. No. Well, the um, truth is that sometimes it does fall apart, that people should all go and read Father Sergius, which I think mm. is is an ag- amazing example, not only of what we talked about earlier in terms of uh, mona- like spiritual striving and the way that that can foster a certain kind of, uh, I don't know, solipsism, but also the way in which God continues to actually love and work in those people no matter what, because those people are us. And that the cross, when it says that when, 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 when Hawley quotes... Uh, Corinthians and says that my strength is made perfect in weakness and uh, and that God really the cross is um, is there for those who um, who are abject you know people in need well then that applies to you and me especially in our in, and and the way that these mental uh, gymnastics kind of manifest themselves in practice. But um, I think that's more than enough uh, for this installment of the Mocking Cast. Um, I wish everyone a happy and hopeful summer, and we will be back in a couple of weeks to talk more about, uh, you know, God's grace. I've got yep. have fun. Tan away. Tan away. Bye, y'all. Tan away. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.